With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 135. It's entitled, Embrace the Messiness. When I was in college, I worked at a large wholesale office products warehouse. The company was Boise Cascade. Each weekday after school, I would drive out to Tri-County in northern Cincinnati, and from 4 to 8 p.m., I would grab a cart, place two large boxes on them, get an order printout, a whole list of office products, and I would walk around the warehouse pushing my cart, filling up the boxes with pens, file folders, staplers, and other office products. When the box was full, I'd take it up front, and the packers would pack it and put it on trucks. These completed orders were shipped to office product stores in Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. There were six of us, other part-time workers, who filled orders. And here's the thing. The sooner we got done each day filling all the orders, the sooner we got to go home. So it was a pretty quick pace. And that hurried pace often led to mistakes, such as the wrong color or quantity or the wrong product altogether that was sent to the stores. Our manager got sick of all these mistakes, and he came up with a pretty simple solution. He hammered six nails to the wooden cabinets at the front of the warehouse and taped the names of each of us order pickers on top of the nails so everyone could see them. It was way up front, brightest day where everyone could see. Then whenever we made a mistake, he would photocopy the order, highlight the line with a mistake, and hang the order on the nail. As a bright college student, I liked this new game. It was sure I wouldn't make any mistakes. A week later, I wasn't so confident. I had the second biggest stack of order mistakes on the nail. The guy with the most mistakes got fired, and my job seemed at risk. There was no way I could game this new measurement system. There, there There's just it was pretty simple. You just didn't make mistakes. The only way to win was just don't make mistakes. So here's what I did. I slowed down, and when I got to the proper shelf in the warehouse, I'd look at the order. I'd look at what I was supposed to get, the order number. I'd select the re- requested product, and then I would double-check. I would compare the product number and quantity to what was on the sheet and put it in the box. This process of double-checking dramatically decreased my mistakes, and my nail at the front of the warehouse was generally empty. Now, not every measurement process designed to reduce errors or encourage improvement is as successful as my office product warehouse manager solution. Often, the new measurement criteria leads to distortion and doesn't solve the problem. For example, in the early 1990s, New York and Pennsylvania introduced a system of report cards showing how doctors and hospitals were performing so patients could make informed choices. Tim Hartford, in his book, Messy, 
the power of disorder to transform our lives, relates how four economists looked at the unwelcome side effects of these report cards on elderly patients who had suffered heart attacks. They discovered doctors avoided operations on seriously ill patients who could die, hurting the doctor's ratings. Instead, doctors preferred operating on patients who didn't really need surgery, but were more likely to survive. The aim of the report cards was to improve healthcare outcomes, but instead it led doctors to perform more expensive treatments, but patients ended up sicker. Similarly, in the mid-2000s, an initiative was launched in the UK to improve the responsiveness of the National Health Service, the government-funded healthcare organization. A new target was adopted in which patients would be given an appointment within 48 hours of calling their doctor. Given the emphasis on this new 48-hour appointment target, the doctors did exceptionally well at showing improvement in meeting the target. Unfortunately, the improvement came at the expense of patient satisfaction. Patients were furious as the only way they could get an appointment with their doctor was to wait on hold for hours at a time because doctors refused to make advance appointments, like appointments a week out ahead. You had to call that day if you wanted to get in, and it often resulted in very long wait times. Why was that? Because the doctors wanted to keep their calendar completely clear in case there's an urgent case that really had to get in. A simple measurement target to foster improvement worked well in the contained environment of an office products warehouse, where the task at hand was relatively straightforward. Simple measurements lead to perverse outcomes in the medical profession because healthcare is significantly more complex with multiple competing priorities. When simplistic rules and targets are applied to complex domains, it often leads to distortions and perverse outcomes. Tim Hartford writes in, in his book on messiness, which was was by far, probably one of the best books I've read this year. He says, The trouble is when we start quantifying and measuring the world, we soon begin to change the world to fit the way we measure it. Notice, as he, as he quotes that, the distortion comes because we soon begin to change the world. Targets and checklists can work quite well to analyze complex phenomena, such as the risk of an avalanche. Skiers have avoided numerous avalanches by looking for obvious clues, such as, has there been an avalanche that recently been reported in the area? Is there evidence of melting on the surface? Has there been a recent rainfall or snowfall in the last 48 hours? The difference with an avalanche, though, is it doesn't change its behavior in response to being measured. People and institutions do. So once we start measuring something, often the institutions or people begin to change their behavior. In the 18th and 19th centuries, foresters in Germany surveyed the forests and later sought to improve them in order to maximize timber yield. Old patchwork of trees were felled, underbrush was cleared, and row after row of Norway spruce was planted. By the late 60s, it was clear that German forests were dying. Two centuries of tidying up forests had reduced biodiversity, making the stands of Norway spruce susceptible to parasites and fungus. Harford writes, the Norway spruce had been profitable at first, but profit concealed the fragility of the situation. 
The first generation of spruce trees had lived off the fertile humus laid down by messier, deciduous old-growth forests, and their roots had pushed down into deep channels freed up as the old roots rotted. Over time, the spruce laid down their own acidic humus, which was far harder for the already weakened forest ecosystem to decompose. The soil gradually compacted, the nutrients leached away, and second and third growth Norway spruce trees grew shallow roots in the malnourishing soil. Now Germans are trying to reintroduce the messiness and complexity into their forests. They're reintroducing dead logs, leaving dead trees standing, introducing a greater variety of trees. Henry Hazlitt wrote a book in 1946 called The Economics in One Lesson. And it kind of illustrates the challenges that we see with, with this, this German forest. He says the whole of economics can be reduced to a single lesson. And that lesson can be reduced to a single sentence. The art of economic consists in looking not merely at the immediate but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. Now, that's economics and life in one lesson. Unfortunately, that is really, really difficult to do. The reason is the world and systems are so complex, it's it's hard to know what the consequences of any decision will be, particularly the unintended consequences. One solution is to be what Karl Popper describes in The Poverty of Historicism is an incrementalist, what he calls a piecemeal engineer. He writes, the characteristic approach of the piecemeal engineer is this, even though he may perhaps cherish some ideas which concern society as a whole, its general welfare perhaps, he does not believe in the method of redesigning as a whole. Whatever his ends, he tries to achieve them by small adjustments and readjustments which can be continually improved upon. The peaceful engineer knows like Socrates how little he knows. He knows that we can learn only from our mistakes. Accordingly, he will make his way step by step, carefully comparing the results expected with the results achieved and always look on, always on the lookout for the unavoidable, unwanted consequences of reform. Now, that seems simple enough, but as you read Tim Harford books, he gives example after example of people taking advantage of chaos, not being piecemeal engineers. He, he gives the story of generals during World War I and World War II. He talks about Jeffrey Bezos with Amazon and, and the risk that Amazon took, and just not piecemeal, making wholesale changes to see what would happen. A lot of it comes down to our work style. David Kirsch is a cognitive scientist at the University of California, San Diego, and he studies what he claims are neats and scruffies. And neats are what I, many, many years ago, I wrote an essay called List Makers. And because some of the people I work with, I, I noticed that they manage your life by making lists, by having very, very detailed calendars. Here's what to do next. And that, that's what Kirsch would call neats. And I was a scruffy. My, my calendar was a little messy. My desk was always a little messy. And, and the advantage of a scruffy 
is you can use the physical clues on your desk to know what you need to do next. If you look at my desk right now, it's not complete chaos, but there, there's a few piles and there's things because there are things I know that I need to do, bills to pay, letters to send, things of that sort. If you have a very, very completely neat desk, you have no physical clues, in which case you have to rely on your calendar or to-do list. Now, one way is not better than the others. Each can be taken to an extreme. I remember I had a client, a retirement home, and I would meet on a quarterly basis with the accountant to or the, the CFO to prepare for the meeting. And we would always meet in the conference room. But one, one day, she had to get something in her office, and she, she invited me back, and, and I was absolutely shocked because I'm used to accountants, I, I think, are typically very, very organized, very, very detailed, detailed list, detailed calendars. Her office was a complete disaster. There was piles everywhere, and she couldn't find what she was looking for. And, and, and so you can take anything to an extreme. So what's, what's better, to have very, very detailed plans, to be a, a, a neat or a scruffy? Well, in Harford's book, he relates how Daniel Kirschbaum, Laurie Humphrey, and Sheldon Millette recruited undergraduates for a short course on study skills and motivation, and they broke the students into three groups. Those that had a daily plan, so a detailed list, so they had planned activities and goals day by day to study and what they were going to study. They also had a group that had a monthly plan, so they're Their goals and study activities were planned a month or so at a time. And then the third group had no plan at all. They were just told to study. They were given some study tips. What they found is the daily plan students, they started off strong, about 20 hours a week of study, but by the end, they were only doing eight hours of study. Those that had no plan at all generally started out at 15 hours of study, and then by the end of the course, were studying about 10 hours a week. The monthly plan did the best. They averaged 25 hours per week, and by the end of the course, were actually studying a little harder. Now, the the authors of the study were trying to figure out what was going on, and what, what they determined is those that had a daily plan, they got discouraged. It was too rigid. They couldn't adjust for unexpected events. And so when, when they got derailed because of something happened, they just got discouraged. And so over time, it was just too overwhelming. But those in the monthly plan, had there was enough flex or next, enough flexibility in their schedule. There's a, there's a balance there. It's, it's controlled chaos. I remember when I first learned to ski. I went to, I was probably in high school, and I was living in Ohio, the tallest hill around, and one of the tallest hills was in Indiana, perfect north slopes. And, and I had never taken a ski lesson. I rented some skis that got at the top of the hill, and I just started going down as just with no control at all, completely out of control. My only, my only lesson was from watching Worldwide of Sports on ABC and seeing the speed racers go down. And I, that was it. And I would flail and go down as fast as I could until I crashed. Later, when I took lessons, I realized that skiing is a, is a matter of, there, there's some skills that control the chaos, but I still find skiing uncomfortable. 
it's it's faster than I like to go down, even though I, I sort of know how to do it now, not very well. I still feel a little out of control, but not completely out of control. And and that's kind of what we have to do with with uh, with our lives. We need to embrace some level of messiness. We need to inject some randomness in in our daily life. Perhaps our route to work. Perhaps different skills. Having working on multiple projects at the same time in terms of maybe having three or four major projects that you're working on. Not that you work at them simultaneously, but moving from one project to the next as you go throughout the day or throughout the week, that actually frees up some creativity and brings ideas from, from, from one project to the, next, to the next. It's just not too tightly controlled. I've talked about the need to, to capture the upside and protect against the downside. So the idea is to to have some some level of control so you're not you know most of us can't be Jeffrey Bezos when we start a company go in make wholesale changes and if it crashes in in Hartford's book he just talks about the sheer chaos and how close they got to failing it eventually worked out but there there's a balance there we can have some control so that we're not irreparably harmed, but there's still enough randomness to take advantage uh, of opportunities as they arise. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. 
Betterment is not a bank. So where does the economy and markets fall with all this? Is, is the economy and financial markets more like an avalanche? It's a complex adaptive system, but there are some obvious clues we can look at to make adjustments to, to avoid catastrophic events. Or is our financial markets the economy more like the German forest, where actions by central bankers, regulators, and investors can cause distortions, particularly as investors anticipate what central bank action is going to be. I think it's some of both. Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, writes, you cannot help dealing with the limited information you have as if it were all there is to know. You build the best possible story from the information available to you, and if it's a good story, you believe it. Financial markets and the economy is driven by stories. We have limited information. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And as a result, as we're measuring the economy or we're making assessments of financial markets, there is some distortions that can occur. There can be information cascades. There can be overvaluations, bubbles. There can be undervaluations. But there are also clues to suggest that you don't know absolutely certain what's going to happen, but and I've talked about investing on the leading edge of the present, that you know, I'm willing, when there's a regime change, when, some, when the risk of a recession is high, to make some adjustments. Now, this is messy. There isn't one way to invest. So recognizing that there's some obvious clues that we can manage risk for, at the same time recognizing that actions by investors regulators and central banks can cause distortions. It makes investing very, very messy. And, and that, that can translate into a very messy portfolio. Sometimes I get emails from people that, that they're, they're frustrated because they have their, their tax deferred. They have a 401k in the U.S. and they might have an individual retirement account and they have a taxable account. Maybe they have annuity and they have all these accounts and maybe they have accounts and their spouse has an account. And, and they've bought different holdings over time. And the, the messiness of it drives them crazy. We have to embrace the messiness. We do occasionally have to, to put everything together. And one of the tools on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub helps us to do that in terms of realizing what's, what's an expected return for different asset classes. But it also it does it can be messy. And, and there isn't one great solution for pulling everything together other than a spreadsheet, which is what I do. But sometimes we, we want to get a complete picture, but it's okay to have a messy portfolio. It, it's important to know kind of where we are overall, what we can earn, but it's okay to take a flyer and buy an individual stock if you think it's interesting. It's okay to have active some active managers even if most of your portfolio are low-cost ETFs in index fund. And it's okay not to know what's going to happen. And I think just like with being a list maker, a needy, or a scruffle, having some piles on your desk, there's a happy balance in recognizing we're primarily buy and hold. We don't know what's going to happen in terms of our investing and willing to, to make adjustments when there's some obvious clues and willing to have different types of securities, different portfolio drivers. We have to be willing 
to, to embrace the messiness. Now, this might seem like I'm contradicting what I spoke about in episode 111, how to be a minimalist investor. And there I talked about simple portfolios, and I used the analogy of pottery and how pottery, wood-fired pottery, when it's put in the kiln, the randomness take over. It's a river of fire and touches so that you're not sure how the pieces come out. So investing can be the same way. Maybe we have simple pieces. We have to find the right balance in terms of the number of holdings we want in our portfolios. I, I have multiple drives in my portfolio. So I, have, so I have passive ETFs. I have some active funds. I have private investment because I don't know which is going to do best in any given year. And I'm willing to embrace some, some randomness, some messiness. But you have to find, if do you, are you starting out as a needy or a scruffy? I'm more of a scruffy. Other people are needy. Perhaps you have read the book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. It's by Marie Kondo. It came out a couple years ago. Again, all these show notes to, and links to this books can be found in on the show notes of moneyfortherestofus.net. Or if you remember my insider's guide, you already have gotten those show notes to you along with a summary article. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net or if a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. And that's free sent to you each week after the podcast episode is released. So I've read this book and I've tried it. Maybe you've tried it. And, and I've tried to fold my clothes the way she says and keeps my drawers orderly. And I can't do it. I just that my sock drawer is is a mess, and what I have found is is a balance. In other words, I only have clothes that I absolutely love and wear, and I've gotten rid of everything else. And then, so the clothes I have, I have, but they they're they're not folded in an orderly way. The socks are spread all over. I'm not a great folder. My my clothes don't necessarily hang straight on the hangers. They're not organized by color or by type. They're there in a way, but there is a, a limited number. And so we have to, and that's the balance for me. I can't be like Marie Kondo and, and everything perfectly organized, but I can't be like my former client that had a complete disaster. Find the way to control the chaos, but embrace the messiness both in your life as well as investing and, and, and be comfortable with the fact that there, there isn't a right answer, that you just have to find the right balance to it. So that's episode 135, Embrace the Messiness. I encourage you to read Tim Harford's new book, came out last month, Messy, the Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. And it's kind of a messy book. Great stories, but there, there's some contradictions there. And there are definitely some contradictions in embracing messiness, but finding the right balance uh, of some order also. Show notes for money for the rest of us.net. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>